This is the Self-Taught or Not podcast with Dylan Israel and Eric Hanchett, where we teach you the do's and don'ts of software development from two software development professionals, one self-taught and one not. Hey guys, before we begin the podcast and talk about the 10X developer, I just want to let you guys know I have a new course out. It's called View360. It's basically a comprehensive course that gets you from being a view newbie to view expert. I'm really, really proud of it. So if you guys are interested, go to course.viewcourse.tech. I'll make sure it's in the show notes that once again, it's course.viewcourse.tech and you too can become a view expert. Thanks. Now on with the show. Hey there guys. So today we are going to talk about coding faster, productivity, the 10x developer, and you know, basically skills that you can use just to become a little bit of a better developer and stand out from the crowd. And as with me, as always, is Dylan. What do you think? I like it. Now, I will say that sometimes the you know the sort of meme that goes with the 10x developer is that like you really can never go fast enough. That once you're a 10x developer, they want you to be a 100x developer. And so uh, a lot of these items we're going to go over. So we talked about some of the the best items that you could do to speed up your development process, but don't stress yourself out about it, I guess is what my point I'm trying to make. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think people, especially new developers, it's pretty intimidating to know that there are people out there that can be twice as productive as you, if not 10 times as productive as you. So let's explain that concept for people who have never heard of this idea of the 10X developer. So you may have seen on Twitter recently, if you're on the Twitter sphere, there's been a lot of criticism of this idea of 10x developer, but it, basically what it is, is a 10x developer is an individual who's thought to be as productive as 10 others in his or her field. The 10x developer would produce 10 times outcomes of the other colleagues in a production engineering or software design environment. So essentially, there are, we kind of, it's almost like a myth. There's these people out there, we think it might be a myth, I'll, let me explain that, that just are super duper productive that if you take an average team and you have one of these mythical 10x developers in it, they're going to do a really good job. They're going to be they're going to be able to to knock things out much much quicker than than everyone else, and that you know they're they're ten times as productive. And I you know I was as I was researching this podcast, I was trying to figure out where this idea came from because I I remember all the way back in like college, my college days, people talking about this 10x developer, and it actually does come from a scientific study in the late 60s early 70s and it's been try to be it's it's been like reproduced a few times but essentially they brought they they studied like hundreds of programmers and they looked at the product productivity of some of them versus others and they were trying to see like if there is a, such a thing as a 10x developer and Steve McConnell has written about this and what they found is the modern day view of it is that there are definitely programmers out there that are orders of magnitude differences among programmers. Now, it's hard to say if that's 10x or what that is, but there is, there is, there seems to be, and it's a general consensus, there seems to be developers that have magnitudes of differences among the programmers um, when you're talking about productivity. Now, the original study in the late 60s, there, it's been peer-reviewed. There has been um, variants, and people have criticized the original study so there is some criticism behind it, but it seems to be the general consensus that there is people 
that that are better programmers, that are more productive, that can be magnitudes better. What what do you think about that, Dylan? I've actually experienced this at a workplace of mine, and not to like say like I'm the best or the greatest, but you know sometimes you have team members who aren't familiar in technologies or maybe a little bit more junior in their career. And at the time when the project I went on, they we had about five consultants and I was sort of the first in-house dev hired. And what ended up happening that convinced them to hire more in-house developers is I was doing more work than the five consultants combined once they started tracking it using you know Jira and all these sort of modern tools. And so it, it can happen where sometimes there are people who are just more familiar with technologies, more advanced in their career that are sort of just doing a better job than other developers. And I think it's sort of development specifically is unique to that because it's, it's hard to know where you're getting a 10 X developer who is and how to sort of measure it because it's a technical field and only really other technical people can understand why one story might take longer than another. But I, I definitely think it's specifically in our field. So that's very real. Maybe 10 X is a little too high, but that's some multiple of it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think there is a multiple out there, and it is hard to measure these things because it's not just about writing more code than the average developer. It's about writing the right code. I like this quote. It's not about writing more code. It's about writing the right code. You become a 10x programmer not by doing an order of magnitude more work, but by making better decisions in an order of magnitude more often. So all of us could write 10,000 lines of code a day, and it could be just spaghetti code that doesn't work, that is crap. But to be actually, to be orders of magnitude better than other developers, you're writing the right code. So that might be code that's easy to understand that um, actually works. Uh, I mean, that's a big thing. That's bug-free. I think that would probably be a criteria of being able to claim to be a 10x developer, that you're not just shipping features, but you're shipping features with uh, the least amount of bugs in a relatively short time. This so kind of reminds... Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I would like to know your thought about this, because this kind of reminds me of like the sort of the catch-22 when it goes to like management. I've, I've talked to other developers who have gone from senior to tech lead to sort of into management. And their their sentiment when we've talked about similar things is that the best developers actually don't stay in development for very long. And the idea being that as you if you are one of these 10x developers, that the business then respects what you bring to the table and then promotes you typically out of development. Yeah, that would I have seen that happen. That's a good point. I think that's a mistake. It's kind of an interesting thing. I guess it depends on the developer. Like, we all kind of want to move up in our careers. And luckily, if you're in the right organization and you're a developer, usually there is a ladder to climb. And some organizations make this very clear when you get hired, or you can look in their manuals that they have different levels. You might have software developer one, two, three, might go, might go to architect or principal is a common term you might hear in this industry. But by promoting people outside that technical role into management where you're not dealing with the day-to-day programming, I think that's kind of a mistake for a lot of people in their careers, especially if they really like programming. And I would assume that companies that do that are going to see a big drop-off on their productivity because then all of a sudden your best developer is no longer developing and he's managing. Now, you could make the argument that 
good developers could become good managers, especially if they have that love of teaching and, and showing people how they became so fast at coding and some good principles. So maybe that would make the team overall better. But that, that's kind of an interesting thing. I think some some of them end up do getting promoted. Um, I think just depends on the organization and and I wouldn't agree that's like across the board. Let's move on. Let's let's talk about uh, some tips. So I, I made a list about eleven here, and so I'm going to go over them, and then we'll just kind of me and Dylan will bounce off each one of these. And I I think Dylan may actually not agree with all of them. May probably agree with some of them. But yep. So I'm going to tell you my my story is that I just like Dylan. I really think that I'm I'm a pretty fast coder. I, you know I'm not I'm not a 10x by any stretch, but I think I'm I'm pretty fast, and I've been told that by people I've worked at worked with, and and I don't want to humble brag, but I think you know I think I I do a pretty good job, and I'm I'm pretty quick and efficient, especially with the code base I'm in now. And and once you really understand the code base, you can be really really quick getting things done. And so these are kind of the tips that I use to become that that I've used to to really quickly write code and write fairly bug-free code. Of course, I'm not perfect. Sometimes bugs slip out and QA tells me that this is not working. But I think the code I write is 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 fairly good and and bug-free and it gets done pretty quickly. So the first thing I do is that uh, I have really tried to master whatever code editor I'm, I was in. I started off on the Vim days without an IDE at all. That's more of a text editor, but if you can add some plugins and everything to, into it to make it an IDE or a code editor. And so by learning the key bindings, some common ones is like easily search files, easily be able to jump from file to file, being able to use extensions like snippets or plugins um, are really important too. Um, and touching, don't touching the mouse. Like I think right when I started really deep diving into development and programming, my goal was like, could I, can I go through the code base really quickly, open the files I need, and just avoid touching the mouse because every time you touch the mouse, it just adds seconds. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, so I, I mean, I tend to agree with knowing your your text editor inside and out, and extensions I think are a huge thing, and not just even like snippets, just actually adding items that are going to stop you from making you know bugs. And we've done a whole episode on that, but uh, about VS Code extensions, which I encourage everyone to go and watch. But just things like I like my personal favorite is just putting a spell checker in my code or the bracket pair colorizer to add contrast so that I can see things quicker and easier. I don't necessarily agree about um, that you need to go and not touch the mouse because it adds seconds on. I I don't think, I, I mean, sometimes there's this, this image people have where you're just like hacking shit out where you're like that hacker sitting there and there's that, that matrix green on the black background. You just tap, 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 tap. I think it's a little bit um, blown out of proportion in the sense, but knowing the hotkeys are, are good and, um, you know, because it's a thinking man's job. It's not necessarily a typing man's job. Typing is 1% in my mind. The other 99% is the thinking and the the the, um, the figuring out what it is you're going to do. Um, but does it help? Sure. I think it's muscle memory more often than not, just being able to understand, like, how do I quickly open up file? How do I quickly go to the end of the line? How do I go to the beginning of the line? How do I go to the en uh, end of the document, to the beginning of the document? How do I quickly search the document? Like those things, once you get that muscle memory down, and that's what Vim really teaches you, and I think you can do most of that just with out-of-the-box Visual Studio code as well. 
But once you got that muscle memory in place, you can it just adds it shaves seconds off every time you jump into a file and you need to do something because you're just a little bit quicker and you can get to the to the line you need it a little bit faster. And uh, one thing I, I I realized, you know, when I was in college, I remember writing papers. You know, as we all know, even in high school, you you tend to write tons of papers. And I remember being with students that didn't know basic things like how to do control C or control V, how to copy and paste using the keyboard, how to um, go to the top of a document, how to use page up and page down, how to highlight and delete things, like all those little things that I think you and me probably take for granted now. If you don't learn those things and how to like not use your keyboard for everything, using the hotkeys and shortcuts and not having to use, not your keyboard for everything, but not having to use your mouse for everything, it just takes time off, and those little things add up after time. Now, I'm not saying you never have to use the mouse. As Dylan pointed out, that's maybe too extreme. But if you can get good without touching the mouse at all, it, it definitely will help you save save you time. Uh, I really like, I want to mention one more thing about snippets. This is something I've really started getting into because um, if you know how to like create a file real quickly, just type in, like in for example, snippets are a way to just type keys on the keyboard like you would type a phrase in like a dash comp and then you hit tab and then it fills in the rest of the component so if i'm creating a component in angular i open up a new file create a new file i type a dash comp i hit tab and then it fills out the rest of the file for me so that way i don't need to add in all the boilerplate code so it's things like that can really just speed things up. Uh, I think we're also familiar with Emmet, like VS Code has this plugin already built in called Emmet. So instead of having to write in tag, you know, uh, bracket, HTML, slash, end bracket, div, slash, div, you just type in dot and the name of the class, hit tab, it makes a div for you. You can do li and then bracket times the time symbol three and then it, or dot ul three and it creates like a an unordered, unordered list. So things like that can just really speed things up. I also have noticed recently too, when I watch really good developers and programmers on YouTube, they they move blocks of code so easily. There, There's a way in Visual Studio Code you can, I've seen Dylan do this too, um, um, which I'm impressed with. Uh, you can highlight a, a, a block of code in VS Code and you just hold down a key and you press up and down. You can just move that block up and down and it recognizes if it's in between different blocks and it just adds it to it or you can do multiple cursors like you can mark three different places on vs code and then type at once and all three places will will write so things like that are kind of neat and as if you get better as a developer and learning the vs code extensions that really helps out yeah and uh one more thing about that about sort of i think standardization is one of the best things that you can do so try to eliminate the things that you have to think about. So when you are, you know, say you're using some sort of linter or ESLint, TSLint, whatever it is, it's turning on the um, autosave functionality so that it goes and it just takes care of it for you. And it's having some of that, anything that you can automate in your sort of workflow. So it's a let one less step for you to do, go ahead and automate. And VS Code has a lot of items and most text editors for that matter. Oh yeah, yeah, like Prettier or Beautify. So when you save it auto formats, that definitely saves time too. Especially if you have picky code reviewers that, may, you know, they want to make sure that you have four spaces for every tab and that and that everything is looks good. That you can't just have like one long line of five hundred characters. Yeah, that's really nice. Let's talk about 
um, how I go about my app every day. So a lot of times when I'm giving us given a story, and I know I need to to have some feature implemented into my code, I usually think back on when I've done something similar to that piece of code. Now I know people do this a couple different ways. I'm going to tell you the way I do it. So if I know I need to create a form. And if you've ever dealt with, and a lot of times I use Vue, but sometimes I'm using Angular. So let's say I'm in Angular. There's a specific way you create forms in Angular. And we've talked about it before in our Angular episodes called reactive forms. So there's a lot of boilerplate with those reactive forms. I can, since I know I'm creating a form, rather than trying to remember the exact syntax or Googling around and trying to remember how to create a reactive form, I'll just search my code base or oftentimes I remember the file the last time we did a reactive form, and I'll just copy and paste that block of code. I know it works. I know it's been revised a few times, so it's not like I'm copying bad code. And I'll use that, and I'll paste that into my file, and that'll be my starter for my reactive form. So rather than having to, to look up forms, Google stuff, copy and paste from somewhere else, which I'm not sure of, I'll look in my own code base and use that as sort of a starter. And I do this all the time. Like anytime I have a anytime I have a new feature or something I need to add, I look inside my code base to see if I've done something similar in the past, and I use that as kind of the starter for it. Uh, the only caveat I would say this: obviously, if you're in a large card ba code base and there's multiple developers and you don't understand the the code that you're copying and pasting, you may want to take a moment to make sure that you understand the code that you're copying and pasting. You don't want to just copy and paste something you have no idea what it does. But after you get pretty familiar with the code base, you can kind of take the different puzzle pieces and just kind of hook them all together. Is this something you do, Dylan? Yeah, definitely. I, I will add the caveat that um, this happens in a sense. So like, it's it's very often that I'll see developers, oh, well, we did it this way in the app, so I went and I copied and pasted it over. And for whatever reason, the thought process of, well, does it need to be the same? Well, yeah, it needs to be the same well, why aren't you importing it from a single location? And so be careful when you're doing this where you definitely want to understand it. But if you are moving multiple parts of the application and saying these two methods are the same, but they're not actually the same exact method, go ahead and you know export it as a file, create a service, create something that you know, you only have to update one item. Otherwise, you're going to start putting in these little gotchas in your code base where the business changes requirements. Say, hey, update this. We actually want this functionality. And then you have to remember to go update in two, three, four spots. And you never do because you didn't touch the thing, you know, a year ago. So, um, but def definitely uh, when coming from stuff that's independent, like reactive forms, I think was a great example where, yeah, you could write something that's going to export that, but the form input is unique in itself. I reference something I already have because you know you don't you're not supposed to memorize everything. What you're supposed to do is understand general concepts, and so I, I know exactly how reactive forms work, but I, I probably couldn't write it from scratch right now, and I I shouldn't need to. There's a lot of ways of handling this too. Uh, that's a good point. Don't do, do, there's this common term: don't repeat yourself. Like you shouldn't repeat yourself over and over again. Um, so maybe just make sure when you're copying pasting things that they're more like more generalized that you can spe specifically add into a library, or as Dylan said, put it into a service or something. So you got to kind of be careful that you're not just duplicating bad code and that once something changes, you have to go to six different places, like you said, to change it. So that that's 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 really important too. The other way to do this I've heard of is some people create their own personal libraries of commonly used snippets of code or commonly used. 
code blocks that they've used in multiple projects or even multiple companies. And then they use that library, either they import it directly in to their code base that they can then reference at any time, or they just kind of have it in some kind of notepad or some documents, Google Docs or something that they can then just copy and paste into their apps that they use it for. So it does take a little bit of skill to do this, like I said, to know when, if this should be, uh, as Dylan pointed out, if this is something that you should kind of abstract out into its own class or own thing that can be shared in multiple places, or if it's something you can usually copy and paste. Let's talk about CLI tools. So most of our frameworks, especially as web developers, we're going to be using uh, command line tools. And so I think uh, it behooves us as software developers to learn the command line. And there's so many kind of neat things you can do once you get good with the command line as a developer that can help speed things up. One, of course, is most of the CLI tools that we have have some sort of scaffolding or generation built into them. So if you used Create React App or Vue CLI or NG, which is the Angular command line tool, you can oftentimes generate files that you need. You might need a service and you don't remember the boilerplate on how to create a service. You can do ng generate service name. Same thing in Vue and React. So that can save you time. There's also kind of neat things you can do when you learn uh, some basics of the command line. Like there is uh, ways you can search through grep. If you ever heard of people grepping things, that's a command line utility in, in the Unix world that works on Mac OS and and many other those systems where you can easily search um, through file systems for files. You can even go in and, and read uh, cat files out. You can less files, which means you can uh, kind of take a look at the bottom of files. You can look at the head of files. You can do kind of sophisticated searches. You can even change things. There's things like awk and, and, and uh, I forgot the other one, awk. Well, there's there's a bunch of different command line utilities you can use just to make your your time a little bit more efficient, and then you can write even write scripts on the command line. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, why reinvent the wheel, right? So, like, if there's a, a CLI tool that's going to do this, and I, I I worked with a brilliant tech lead who wanted to make a, a point at one time to like how long would it actually take to spin up your own Angular application from scratch with you know with the same functionality and it took him like three or four days to actually go and build what the CLI could do in like five minutes. Um, so use what, use what's available. Uh, I, I don't know that you necessarily need to, whenever I go and use like a CLI thing, it's like, God, I have to do this manual thing. Like it, I have to create all this boilerplate. Usually that's, there's something. So if it's boilerplate related, there's a CLI tool that'll do it for you and a snippet tool. And so I usually try and find out what the command is and save myself a little bit of a headache. There's also understanding the code base. So there is kind of a, a good rule rule of, or tip, rule of thumb. That's the right expression. That once you jump into a new project or new company, that you should start really deep diving into their code base and understanding it. And if you are put onto a different project or you are creating a project from scratch, just try to understand what the other developers are doing. Try to understand the bigger implications of where the code is, how it works, what services, what outside services, third-party libraries that you're using. This is so important to be uh, better and faster and more productive 
if you don't understand the code base you're in, it's going to be very difficult for you to be quick in it. Um, obviously, there is some things that you can do easily, but there are most things, especially when you're having to get into features and you're needing to talk to multiple different components, you're, you're going to have a problem um, doing things quickly if you don't understand the code base. Yeah, and this is one of the items I, I think people don't respect enough. What it like, like for instance, I've I've been working in the same code base for about a year, and it, it's a little bit jumbled at times. So I know sort of the quirkiness that goes along with it, uh, and like, oh well, it does this because this is how it was written, this is why, and this is how we can fix it. Well, if you're to throw a new developer in there, you're talking about like a day of just sort of diving into the code base to get to that point if they ever get to it, depending on how crazy it is. And it's kind of hard for, um, you know, the business. I don't know if businesses value that as much as they should for one end. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a good thing to have if you can keep a developer around because the average developer stays at a role for a year and a half. And so understanding the code base is going to be one of the items that are going to make you pro probably of all the things we've talked about so far, the the most important one in my eyes. Yeah, for sure. Just being able to jump into a code base and understanding it is, is extremely important. I think it also comes with experience too. So newer developers are going to take a lot longer to jump into a code base and understand what it's doing um, compared to senior developers. So I would expect someone like Dylan to jump in a code base and, and be much quicker than someone who just came out of a coding boot camp. Because in addition to not understanding the code base, someone from a, a boot camp may not understand, like going back to an Angular example, they may not understand what a service is. They may not understand DOM manipulation, or they may not understand certain parts. Like they don't even understand the fundamentals of the things they're looking at. Um, so that that takes even longer. Let's talk about breaking things down into smaller parts. So, and by the way, sorry for the, if you guys heard in the background, I had a visitor come into my office. So I apologize. Get, get the belt, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> get him. All right. So um, this is kind of interesting. The To, to break things into to small parts, I think when you get really good at coding and you get become really fast at coding, you really have to, this is an important skill is to take a look at whatever feature or problem that you have and uh, break it down into smaller parts. So the example is like, if you know this feature is super huge and has a lot of complex and moving pieces, see if you can take the easiest piece and break it out into its separate, in, into something separate. And in this case, if you're in a company that uses Jira or stories or some kind of can Kanban board, then you might take a larger story and break it up into different tasks. That's typically what you do in, in a lot of companies. And then what you do when you get one of these tasks is you try to um, take the one, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can take the task that's maybe the easiest to do first and that you can build some momentum on. So sometimes I do this in the morning, like, you know, I'm kind of tired, I'm a little groggy. You know, I just, uh, just got up and I'm just kind of diving, deep diving into a code base. So rather than taking on something really difficult that's going to take a lot of brain power and thought, I might just do like a simple form or a simple something I know I can knock out maybe in a half hour. And I start with that and then I know I took that little piece off the plate and now I can work on the other pieces. 
And so if you can kind of take small pieces out at a time, you can kind of build momentum. And once you get one thing done, you feel good about it, you can bring it to the next thing. There's also this idea of eat the frog. And I'm probably butchering this, but eat the frog is, is what I feel like it means is that just just do it. Like don't don't try to distract yourself. Don't wait 20 minutes. Just whatever it is, just go ahead and do it. Don't let, leave any thought to it. Uh, you know you have the small piece you need to get done. Just start on it right away. And it might be the hardest thing. You can also have that thing where maybe if you want to start something, just do the hardest part first and then do the easiest, easier parts later. Yeah, and one, one, yeah, one thing with, with sort of breaking this up into smaller parts, I think this is, it becomes easier and easier as you gain some experience. I think this is a terrifying thing for junior or aspiring developers. It's like the old, I look at the empty text editor and I see the thing I have to build and then you just sort of panic sets in. It's like looking into the void. But um, as you go and you're at uh, you know a junior or senior level and, and getting going, I, I mean, you, you should be breaking out. You should be able to look at a problem uh, or, a, or a potential feature and say, hey, okay, these are the moving parts. How do I tackle the moving parts? And one thing I think that helps if, and some people don't necessarily like test-driven development, uh, but if you go and write a test suite of how each one of those small parts is going to work individually, it'll start to get the juices flowing a little bit if you're really struggling with breaking that out. There's my mute. Yeah, I was going to say that, that that's a good point. I've never done test-driven development. I, I need to take some notes from you how to do that. It is fantastic. So I, I um, admittedly, I don't do it as much as I should. I write tests for everything, but I, I do sort of a, um, I do sort of a half-assed version in my, in my work life. But I, I do think it's one of the items where so often we force ourselves to think only about the happy path and whether we do it or not, you're like, Oh, well, this is probably how it would work. And you're like, Oh, that it works. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but when you force yourself instead to write the test first, and you start thinking about all the, you know, you sort of change the mindset of the happy path to the unhappy path. It becomes a very powerful tool. And it also forces you to think about how these pieces will work interchangeably. But from a practical approach, I typically will tackle the, um, the data part of, you know, if, whether you're working the front end or the back end, I like to tackle the models and the data part of it. Cause I, think usually most of our jobs is just connecting one portion of an application to another, whether it's the database connecting to the back end, the back end manipulating the data to send to the front end and the front end displaying it. To me, the one thing that overlaps for a lot of them is just data models. And so the data model is usually where I define that first, and that usually helps piece everything else out. I know very sophisticated organizations like work you, the data model that you have in the front end can work in the back end too. Doesn't Nest do that? Like you can have a data model that you define for both. You can kind of so, share between the both of them. Yeah. So one of the cool things that um, we implemented at my workplace is something called Yup. Yup is a essentially a data model validated that validator that you can use um, as schema validation. And so you can set a bunch of um, requirements, right? So like let's say there's a property. And you can say, okay, well, this property needs to be a Mongo ID. If not, throw an error. This prop, this name, like this name of whatever of a user, needs to be at least three characters. If not, throw an error. And so, what we've done is we've gone and defined because uh, had issues with the uh, data models not being 
in sync, right? So like one major thing that can happen in, in applications, you go, go, go fast, and then you don't migrate data properly. Um, so one way to avoid that is to have a contract or a model that you that is consistent between the front end and the back end. And you can do that with a, um, a mono repo, which you have both in, but typically a lot of organizations don't do that. Or you can simply create your own contracts that are passed in through an NPM repo and import those into the back end and the front end. And um, if you haven't checked out Yup for projects, I, I highly recommend it. I've been a huge fan. It also has helped to lower some uh, logic where there's the, you have the potential to do um, a little bit of conditional logic where let's say you have like you're keeping track of an array of items and if under certain circumstances some of your values need to be certain things if there's no items versus one item so you can do stuff like that in the schema with the schema validation of yep i'm, I'm a big fan of it and I, I encourage people to check it out that's really and it's all in typescript right well yeah you, you can do typescript with yep you don't have to though by by default it doesn't come but there is a, a typed package that goes with it yeah it just reminded me of that for a second i know there's that that is a big issue with your front end and back end you you have these api contracts that the front end has to implement but uh, having something to kind of keep track of both of those and that the front end doesn't send something that back end doesn't expect or maybe if you have validations on each individual input and the front end needs to know about that having some way to hook that into your app is kind of interesting Anyways, I think we're digressing a little bit. That's very interesting. Let's talk about uh, avoiding distractions. So this is really important. I think we've talked about this before, and I think we did a productivity episode last season. But just having a certain amount of time where you can get into the flow of your programming time. And when I think of flow, I think of when time almost stops and you're just so into the code that hours fly by and you're getting things done and things are working and you're just getting a lot of of, of uh, a lot of development work done. And I I would say one of the biggest ways I've been able to code faster is having those three, sometimes two, three or four hours of this productivity time where I don't have any distractions. I take Slack, I turn off messages, I put my phone in the other side of the room, I make sure I'm not on social media or Twitter or Facebook or anything, and I can just code for a certain period of time. And if problems happen, I can fix it. Now, there is something called the Pomodoro Technique. I tried this in the past, and I, I used to be a proponent of it, and I'm no longer a proponent of it. And Pomodoro is where you kind of break your time down into these 20 or 25-minute chunks and then you like you work for 25 minutes and then you take a two minute break. Then you work for 25 minutes and then you take a three minute break. And then like after the third 25 minute time you work, you take like a 15 minute break or something like that. And what I found is that as soon as that 25 minutes comes up, or it's either 20 or 25 minutes, can't remember. I'm like so invested in what I'm doing. Like it just, I lose my momentum. So I usually work for like at least an hour, if not two or three hour chunks at a time. Yeah, I I've tried as well. I, I'm not a fan. I think um, I think I found it more valuable when I was just trying to force myself to learn to code than actually being a software engineer. Um, it's it's also one of those items I think people use to to. It's almost like a, a stopgap from people bothering you. 
where like you're like hey you know this guy's doing his pomodoro technique and then like all right i'll i'll wait 30 minutes before i interrupt uh but i i'm a big fan of just going as hard as you can until you need a break so that's that's usually how i go have do you have times i've had this happen where i know i have work to be done i'm sitting in front of my computer it's normal work hours I don't have distractions, but it's just hard to like hit that first, like write that first line of code and start getting to go. Cause you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. Or you're sort of tired or like something else maybe is in your brain distracting you. So you end up like, you know, checking other code or surfing the web or something for a little bit. Has that ever happened to you? Absolutely. It usually happens when there's something going on in my personal life or um, sleep deprived. It happened recently, uh, a couple months back when, when my relationship ended. I for the for about two weeks, I had a really hard time doing my job just because my mental state was different than it normally would be. And so I'd be sitting down there and I'd, you know, you're sort of struggling to care at times. And so, um, you know, it, it definitely had a, a decrease in productivity for two weeks. But one way that I overcome that is I sort of one, I take a shit ton of caffeine. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not advising to do it. But <laughs> that is like so, injected directly into your veins or straight into the brain. All right. <laughs> Spinal tap under um, your eyelids. Yeah. Uh, two is I, I'm a big proponent of being comfortable at your workstation. And so, you know, you have these things where standing desks help where now uh, I don't want to sit. I want to stand because of morning or vice versa. Um, having multiple monitors, having uh, a keyboard and mouse that works for you and not just using the one that you know the business gave you, having an armrest, a comfortable chair, all these things to sort of make it easier for me to be more comfortable in my workstation. Having having a workstation, having a place where this isn't where I go and play and eat dinner at and all this other stuff. This is where I work. This is where I do these things. And setting that environment. So I do it. But yeah, I, I have had those those issues. And Oftentimes it's, um, you know, trying to get the energy levels up and trying to solve what other issues are in the background. Meditation has helped for me as well on those days where I go, I reflect for 20 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is. And then um, it it helps me to be like, okay, I take a walk. Uh, Sometimes it's restlessness taking a walk. So it really depends, but it, it definitely happens to, I think, the best of us. Sometimes I'd like take a walk too. That's like something that I like to do. Like maybe if I start... Like I get on my computer at the beginning of the day, I know I got a project done, but I'm just like feeling sluggish or just I can't mentally focus. You know, maybe I'll take a walk for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just kind of clear my head a little bit. Sometimes I, we're all working from home right now. So sometimes just working in a different place helps me too. Like I'll, I'll take my laptop and I'll go downstairs and work downstairs on my kitchen table for a little bit or on my couch. My, my wife hates this. Sometimes I'll do this. I'll go downstairs and I'll sit in my couch and then I'll turn on the TV and I'll I'll watch uh, like I'll have like a program on, in the background and I'll be kind of coding and then watching a little bit at the same time. It's more like background noise or I'll um, sometimes I watch Twitch or stream um, stuff. And, and my wife's like, are you working? <laughs> She'll come down. And I'm like, no, I'm working. I just need this in the background. And then something sometimes I just clicks and I start programming. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I mean, I Let's I have music dopamine. going at all times, so it's so, somewhat yeah. similar. But the problem is, though, if you do that too often, like TV, 
it's sometimes TV is too distracting. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, now I'm just watching TV instead of working. Uh, let me talk about debugging. So I think this is an extremely important skill, and it's one of the things that new software developers have a lot of problems with because it, it's a skill. It's a skill that you have to learn and you get better at as your software development journey goes on. It's basically the way that when you run into an issue or problem, how you solve it. And so my, my tips on that would be, first, if you're in an environment where you can ask somebody, I, I, I try to say don't ask someone right away. So you want to try to figure it out yourself. It's kind of that whole thing about, you know, teach a man to fish. They'll, you give a man a fish, he'll be, be fed for one day. Teach a man how to fish, he'll be fed for life. So if you can learn the skills to debug, then you'll have these lifelong skills to do it. So um, one thing to do I really like doing is using console logs. It's like the simplest form of debugging. I think we've all done it. You can also get more fancy and use console like alerts and errors too. Doing breakpoints, especially if you have source maps turned on. Now these are tips for web development, but you might be able to use them for other software development disciplines. But using breakpoints at certain parts of time is extremely important. So you can break exactly at what part of the code is not working quite correctly. Learning the Google foo, like just being really good at Googling, finding your answer, looking up. And you have to be quick too, because you can get, it's really distracting when you're Googling and you have these huge blog articles, but being able to quickly scan through a blog and find your answer, being able to look through Stack Overflow. I mean, I just had this comment on Twitter the other day. I think most of the time while I'm looking, uh, Googling now, I find that GitHub issues seem to have my my problem in them more often than Stack Overflow nowadays. So I end up looking at a lot of GitHub issues, especially if it's very, very particular because of certain third-party libraries. So that that's a still a, a skill, not a still, a skill that you should get really good at. Yeah, and one thing I would say that's part of debugging that people oftentimes forget about is testing. Um, you want to make sure that as you go, you're not breaking anything. So if I've Am I two-thirds of the way through my, through my feature? My feature should have two-thirds test coverage. And as I'm going and testing and fixing something, I want to make sure I don't break it along the way. And you can also do that by writing a, writing a test that you're hoping is going to pass, but is currently failing. So as you go through and you're like, oh, it's finally passing, you know your your feature, you, you got the solution, and now you can go and you know look at it and reflect upon it. Um, so something that, that to me is part of debugging as well. There's also the idea, just test one thing at a time. This is really hard for some new developers. They'll just comment out huge pieces of code and then they'll try again and they'll comment some pieces of code. Maybe if you can try to figure out a good system of just commenting one piece of code out at a time, then trying that out, commenting another piece of code, try that out. And you have to have a sort of a, a somewhat amount of discipline, and you kind of not panic. Uh, so you should be able to uh, calmly try to figure out an issue because sometimes this is not uncommon for developers. You might be stuck on something for like hours. It could be uh, it could be days in, in very rare circumstances. Usually, if you get a certain amount of time goes by. Like if you can't figure something out within like a half a day or two or three hours, you probably should ask someone for help if you have that. Sometimes you don't have anyone that can help you or 
they may not know the answer themselves, so they may not be helpful. I think as you become more of a senior developer, you're going to find out that there's nobody else to ask. I don't know if you've had this, Dylan, like, like you as a senior developer, you could ask another senior developer, but they may not know either and they don't have time to research the issue for you. So sometimes you end up having to rely on yourself to figure it out. But don't freak out if it some of these problems can take days, well, hopefully not days, but you know, hours. And then sometimes you have to just shelve it and maybe move on to something else. And then in very, 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 very rare circumstances, it might have to be, uh, if it's an issue like with the technology, it might be something you have to bring up to your manager and be like, hey, listen, there's this really weird issue because I've had this happen where like this is a known issue in this package. There's no really easy way to fix it. But we're going to have to either not do this feature or do this feature slightly different. Yeah, definitely. And it's um, communication is key in any role and uh, relationships for that matter. A little dating advice for some of you from uh, somebody who's single, so don't listen to me. But uh, so uh, the uh, one thing is always... I, I don't wait hours. I wait 30 minutes. If I can't solve something in 30 minutes, I reach out to somebody because I'd rather interrupt somebody, get some feedback who might have an idea to a solution or at least point me in the right direction than go back to it. Um, I think the, the business would rather have that be a, a, a potential plan of action. And if there is an issue with the feature package, I raise it up and say, hey, this is what the, this is where we're at. Now, Part of your job as a as a software engineer isn't it, it like you. It's not that you can't solve something. It's just the amount of time that it takes. And I think communicating that is just as important. I've gone back to stakeholders or project managers and said, "Listen, what you're asking for is X, Y, and Z. That last Z takes it from being a two day to a two week project. How important is Z? And sometimes." having those conversations um even when you get stuck on things saying hey i'm stuck on this i'm nobody else is gonna figure it out it's just me um i eventually will figure it out it's just gonna be time consuming it may be an awkward conversation for you because it's you're essentially i don't say admitting defeat but you're admitting a struggle Uh, but those are conversations i think are healthy to have and that you should have because not everything is you know painted in in stone not everything is it's it's all it's all up for conversation, so it's stuff to consider. A good manager too will will back you up on that. So if they notice that there is a real big issue, that's not something fixed that you can easily fix by just a quick Google search. There's a fundamental technical problem, then they'll back you up and be like, you know, back you up to business that yeah, this is a problem. We can't do this. Uh, one other thing I just thought of while you were talking, Dylan, is the is rubber ducking. This is kind of a a funny term in software development where if you have a problem and you're trying to debug it and you can't figure it out, just sometimes talking to someone, even if they aren't as technical as you or don't know the problem as well as you, and just explaining everything you've done in minute detail from start to finish, sometimes will trigger in your own brain of what the solution would, would be. And also I've come up with, and one other tip too, just sometimes walking away from a problem that you have you know, taking a walk, thinking, coming back to it the next day. I think sometimes our brain just refreshes, so to speak. It just gets a little bit of time to rest, and then it'll come up with the answers to the problem that you're having. And you'll be like, oh, I should try this. I've definitely done that. I'll be in the shower the next day after I've been stuck on some sort of bug, and it'll just like pop in my head what a potential 
problem will be solved. Let's uh, now we got a few more left. The podcast is getting a little long, so we'll kind of fire through a few of these a little quicker. So I I like this idea, and I I'm still trying to get better at this about uh, coming up with a plan. So usually, anytime you're in a software development environment, we have this thing is called a software development lifecycle, and that's usually how software gets from our product people to our developers to our QA and out into production. That's a very simplified process. But the planning of any sort of uh, feature is extremely important, and try to understand the technical implementation of that feature is also really important. So time, trying to take some time before you start a feature to understand how you're going to implement it is really important. And sometimes this is built into kind of the agile manifest that we do, the agile methodology, I should say, where you create user stories and as part of user the perspective as a user, it gets kind of sent down to developers who write tasks and kind of write the how of how those user stories are going to work. So that helps, but really just understanding um, what you're going to do to fix the problem and even sketching it down on a piece of paper or using a wiki to, to sketch out the pattern is good. We have an architect at my company and I've worked at other companies that have an architect that's really going over the end-to-end -end solution and using things like UML diagrams and other um, pretty pictures, we call them, just to see how this feature will work, not just the front end. But it's also important if you're working on the front end or you're working on the back end that you kind of sketch out for yourself how you want to architect it. Do you want to split this component up into th this feature into four different components? Are you going to need a, a service? Like once again, if going back to Angular or if you're using React, like how, are you going to use your own custom hooks for it? Or if you're in Vue, are you going to uh, you know, use uh, some custom directives? Like trying to think beforehand before you start programming is a great skill to have. It might be more upfront work, but it'll actually help you in the long term. Yeah, and I think this is something a lot of people just get to going and writing code. Because they're like, oh, feature, 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 fast, 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 right? And the stress of all that. Because it can be, you know, there's always going to be people above you wanting stuff and you want to give them to them and nature of the beast. But sometimes take a moment, not sometimes, always take a moment and think about how things are going to work together and how you're going to build it properly so that you're not fixing it and, and putting potential issues in in the future that you're going to need to then solve. Do you sketch out your features somewhere before you jump into like front end code, or do you already have an idea in the back of your head? It it depends on the complexity. Uh, so if it's a larger feature, then yeah, I I um I'll typically just in a in a document have maybe it might be a text editor where I'll just have some comments where I'm like, okay, this is gonna go there, and then I'll like make a little arrow. This will connect to this. This will connect to this, and those will connect to that. Or I might even actually take out my whiteboard and draw it out and start thinking about some potential issues. And especially with refactoring, it really helps. I've had to refactor a lot of previous applications to be more uh, verbose and, and efficient. And you start thinking, okay, these are the pieces and they're all one piece right now. How do I break it out into the various pieces that it should be? Um, so I, it depends on the situation. I agree. I haven't done too much of this. Usually other than just kind of writing out what features I'm going to be doing 
in my tickets and our JIRA system. I think I need to get better at this planning out. Sometimes I do end up, what happens is that you could jump into a, a feature and you're trying to kind of code at the same time you're doing it. And then you'll get like a couple hours in and then you'll find out, oh, you know, I need to add this in. And then you have to redo everything you did or you have to kind of shoehorn it in. And it doesn't make much sense. And more complicated features are a big issue with that, especially in the back end. Like if you don't architect your app or your feature correctly in the back end, you can get a lot of spaghetti code. Luckily, there that's one of the reasons too that we use these frameworks like Vue or Angular or you know Ember or whatever, because those are things that that typically kind of have these patterns in place. So we know that we need to add a component. This is how you can add a component. This is the, this is where the CSS is. This is where the HTML is. Components are are outside the normal app flow because they're in separate files. We're not, it already has kind of a pattern and best practices in place. So keep that in mind too. Also, one other thing, if you really want to spend a little bit more time, think about any future possible blockers. Usually trying to coordinate a feature between the back end and front end can be difficult because either the back end uh, finishes the feature first and then the, the front end is, is now, um, kind of holding everything up or it can be vice versa. So trying to think of like where you fall in and what's going to block you in the future and see if you can mitigate that. Let's talk about keeping things simple. This is kind of just a, uh, this is a simple tip. So what it is, is we as software developers, I you know I love to do this. I go on Twitter or I'll be reading some blog and I'll find a new way to deal with objects, or I'll find a new way to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I wanna add this into my code. And then next time you you come up with, you you run across that problem, you're like, okay, I should do it this way. But you have to really think like, is this, is what I'm writing, is it just kind of a clever way of doing it? Am I gonna come back in three months and look at this code and not know what the heck it's doing? If I just added in a couple of more lines, would it make more sense? And ultimately what you wanna do is write code that's readable, and that you don't have to do a bunch of research to figure out um, what it did. So if you have this really clever one-liner, but you could have put it in three lines, you know that's that's not a good thing because you're eventually going to have to go back to that code and maintain it. And if you don't know what it's doing, that's going to hinder you. And I also have a comment. I'm going to ask Dylan this: What do you think about comments? This is I, when I was in school, everybody's like put comments everywhere. But I've noticed in my professional life, comments are rare. People don't put them in. What do you think about that? Yeah, comments are dog shit. Uh, so it's uh, generally speaking, if you're following good, clean code practices where um, you have self-documenting code, 99% of the time, the reason you have to put a comment in is because your code isn't readable. So by changing the method names, by changing the variable names, by making your code more readable, you typically eliminate the need for a comment. And not only do you eliminate the need for a comment, you then eliminate the need to update a comment whenever that method changes. So the comments then become misleading so i i remember the same stuff in school generally speaking comments are for bad code and uh if you don't understand what the code is doing without comments you need to look and see maybe how to make it more understandable do you use to do's as well i know some people put to do's all over their comments to come back to later some future date no, absolutely not that's, that's garbage too uh if there is something that needs to be fixed then create a create an item in the backlog, whether it's even a technical debt or a feature, and and at some point tackle it. You know, it's when you go into code bases, 
like a red flag that you see is if they have lots of to-do comments. That's they just leave a comment that says to-do, or you see whole blocks of code commented out, but not deleted from the code base. That's usually typically a bad practice too, and I've, I've been guilty of that. But I've been pretty trying to be good to just delete those things out. The first thing I did in a project I started was I went through the application. There was five thousand lines of uh, deleted code or commented out code. I deleted it all. Didn't even ask. Push it straight to master. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the pull requests. You just no. Just, just push that right straight to master. And like I was like, what are you gonna complain? Are you gonna complain? I pushed it straight to master. You just had five thousand lines of code just commented out there, causing confusion and errors. No, nope. goodbye. Like, oh. and that's so hard for new developers too. When they start programming, they're they're worried that like, oh, this code. You know, if I delete this out, it's gone. I don't know what it did, or, or they'll they're afraid that they'll they need to keep that piece of code commented out because they may need to bring it back at some point. But I mean, the reality is like we have version control systems. You could probably find that code somewhere. And if you really need to keep it, you copy and paste it into your own notepad. But I've had that feeling like when I was first starting out, I was like, I can't delete this code. I just have to comment out once if we need to get it back. Maybe it's just yeah, that's but the mindset. Like the commented code isn't being used because it's wrong or incorrect. So like you don't want, you don't need to have it as a reference point anyhow, because it's wrong. And so you just get rid of it. I know some coding standards too that you have to, I've been at some companies that they made you put comment blocks in front of every method just so you can explain what that method does. So your company may vary on, on what they think about just normal comments, but I, I tend to agree with Dylan and all that. The last, uh, the last thing I wanted to say is we, you gotta get good reading documentation. This is a skill just like debugging where you need to be able to look at the official documentation or any sort of documentation and try to read it. And this is going to vary between different different uh, apps you build and different technologies. Some of the documentation is going to be really well written and and have great examples, and some is going to be not so well written. But to be able to quickly scan through documentation, find the thing that you need, and be able to implement it is really important and even being able to look at kind of bad documentation where you just get like they just pulled it out of the code somewhere and they have no examples and try to at least understand a little bit of how you can implement that is important too i will say i i really appreciate good documentation if you look at the view official documentation that is excellent with excellent support and excellent examples and tutorials and we've talked about this before the angular documentation not so much but even on the ones that aren't great, just trying to understand it enough so you can pull things out of it and put it into your own code base and try to understand what it is, is kind of a skill and it's something you need to get good at to become faster at programming. Yeah, I, I mean, we could shit on every documentation out there for the most part, but generally speaking, I mean, it's the go-to line of truth, really, at the end of the day. And I think also what helps, and I think you would agree with this, Dylan, is if you're using a typed language like TypeScript, you have IntelliSense. Like you can just put dot or whatever space, command space, and you could see all the options that you have available. And so you may not, you probably will still have to look at the documentation occasionally, but you might be able to just figure it out by using the IntelliSense if you have types set up correctly with ever, this is assuming we're using some third party uh, library that we need to bring in. 
All right, so that is it. I mean, we've kind of worked, uh, one other thing, kind of a bonus one we've already kind of touched on is just testing. I think uh, being a good, testing seems like it's the antithesis of being a 10X developer because it adds more time to it. But uh, if you are a good tester, it'll save you more time in the long run. Um, Test. Te I look at testing like this. If our job is to dig a hole, testing is taking the time to go get the shovel rather than doing it by hand. And so like that's that's how I look at testing is it's going to speed up. Yeah, you got to go to the store to grab a shovel, but you're going to dig that hole much faster. So that's sort of my my analogy for testing. Sweet. Yeah, that's all I got. Thank you, Dylan, as always. If you guys have any tips that I missed in here or you disagree or agree with it, you know, tweet me at ericch, E-R-I-K-C-H, on Twitter, you know, go ahead and follow me. Or Dylan, what's your... You don't use Twitter too much, but... No, your... uh, Pizza Poker Guy. Pizza Poker Guy. Yeah, tweet it's... us. I, we're thinking... I think we should get... Maybe for season three, we should get, like, an official Twitter account. We might have to do that. If you're going to manage Smaller. it, I, I'm not about that. <laughs> that Twitter life. We'll figure it out, though. But I think there's there's... I think if you just take a couple of these things we talked about today and start implementing them, like work on your debugging skills, mastering your code editor, uh, you understanding the CLI, um, you know, breaking things into smaller parts, coming up with a plan. If you implement some of these things, I think you'll definitely see an increase in your productivity and speed of how you deliver things. And it's really a game changer in your career. If you can be the developer that your boss is always going to because they know that you're going to get things done quickly and do it right, I mean, you are going to be well off on in your career, and that's going to really help you out. And it's also fun because when what happens, if you get really good at this, deadlines are like no problem to hit. So you'll have... Now, this is not always the case, but if you... If everyone else in your team is saying two weeks for this feature and you can get it done in a week, then you have a week more to like make sure you did it right, to do your testing, to have some downtime, rather than well, some other people are going to work like extra time. They're going to have to like put extra hours in, and you're going to be like set. And then when that deadline comes up, you're like, oh, I I got it done. You know, a few days ago, I'm good. Now that the worry is is that if you do that continuously, all of a sudden you're one week deadlines will become or your two week deadlines will become one week and then you'll be just barely getting everything done hopefully that's not the case but it, it is nice when you can get in a good pattern where you can get things done quickly and do them right and then still have some time left over to double check everything yep. all right see you guys bye hey guys thanks for watching if you want to find more about what i'm up to go to dylanisrael.com and if you want to know what i'm up to you can check out my website at eric.video. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And if you do, you might even be featured on our next episode. Don't forget to check out the website at selftaughtornot.com. From there, you can sign up for a mailing list where we give away free courses and a bunch of cool stuff. And we'll also let you know when the next episode comes out. And finally, if you didn't know, we have a Facebook group. It's called Code Tech and Caffeine. We have over 10,000 members. And you can find the link at selftaughtornot.com. So come join us. We have tons of developers willing to help you guys, mentor you guys. Check it out. Just make sure you go to selftaughtornot.com and check out the Code Tech and Caffeine link. Thanks and take care.